0: I learned a little bit at the time about the New Jewel Movement and Maurice Bishop. And I remember writing a longish piece for the school newspaper on the U.S. intervention into Grenada, trying to attach it in my own juvenile way to other U.S. interventions of that kind, including, and most spectacularly, the U.S. armed entry into the Dominican Republic in 1965. In this article, I compared the intervention into the Dominican Republic with Grenada, and it impacted me a lot because I felt, why do poor people have to tolerate this over and over again?
1: That's Vijay Prashad, and this is Alternative Radio, I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Vijay Prashad on History Lessons, part one of a special two-part program. Is history just a bunch of innocuous cold facts and dates? Or is it something more? What can we learn from the past? History is not neutral. It's an ideological battleground. Witness the vitriolic attacks by establishment figures on those who want a reckoning of the enslavement of African Americans. They want to obfuscate that sordid of history. Or take the US invasion of Grenada in 1983. What was that about? Or the CIA coup in Chile. Never read about that in school. Elites can lie outright about history or they can omit facts that might lead to inconvenient conclusions. The rulers want to keep to their sanitized version of the past and maintain myths about enlightened leaders. Sure, here and there a few bad apples made mistakes, but they were the exception, not the rule. Were they? Our guest today is Vijay Prashad. He's an internationally renowned historian and journalist. He's the director of Tricontinental and chief correspondent for Globetrotter. He's the author of many books, including The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World, and Washington Bullets, CIA Coups and Assassinations. I talked with him in early November. Welcome to the program.
0: It's an honor to be with you, David.
1: Thank you. Howard Zinn, whose centenary we are marking this year, wrote in the preface to your book, The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World. Zinn wrote, turning history on its head opens up whole new worlds of possibility. Once historians looked only at society's upper crust, the leaders and others who made the headlines and whose words and deeds survived as historical truth. In our lifetimes, Zinn continues, this has begun to change. Shifting history's lens from the upper rungs to the lower, we're learning more than ever about the masses of people who did the work that made society tick. Now, you are a historian in the Zinn tradition of turning history on its head along with Eduardo Galeano, C.L.R. James, uh, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, and others. Talk about that. Talk about uh, peeling away the layers of subterfuge and propaganda and challenging the lies and fantasies of imperialism.
0: Well, you know, David, it's a funny business because the question always is, what is available when you go back to look at the past? the old adage, however cliched, is correct, that who wins writes the history. That's a correct statement because it's not the writing of the history alone, but it's the creation of documentation, which then subsequent historians must read. And also it's the attitude of the historian, you know, when you read those documents. When I went to graduate school in the 1980s, there was a great sense of perhaps you know let's call it what it was a great sense of despair at the world even then the united states began a very aggressive series of military campaigns after the dirty wars in central america um, against panama in 1989 and then iraq in 1990 1991 Um, A new epoch was opening up and historians seemed Uh, gloomy about both the past and the future you know you only write about the past in a sense um, how you experience the present it it really impacts people if you're in the middle of a major social movement you might have more faith in looking for uh, people in social movements of one kind or the other in the past well in that period we were taught to read the documents against their grain it was Now becoming de rigueur to do that, you know, there was subaltern studies, there was history from below and so on, Um, but what I found was it was not so much the techniques of reading history against the grain, as the attitude that a historian must bring to their work. Are you genuinely interested in the masses of people do you really believe that they can make history, Uh, are you taking that stance as it were because you. Are being told to, or do you really believe they can change things? You know, um, futility is a poor way to look back at people's struggles. Just because somebody lost a struggle doesn't mean that they were not right to conduct it, or it doesn't mean that had they prevailed, they wouldn't have made a better world. You know, that stance, that attitude, to my opinion, in my opinion, is very important. So when I read people like Howard Zinn, Eduardo Galliano, Walter Rodney, and so on, it's very clear that they have faith that had the people won in this or that event in the past, um, the people would have created a better world than the minorities that eventually won through force, were able to monopolize power, and then created a world where they benefit and everybody else seems to have to work for them. So I, I very much believe that It's the attitude of the historian toward the past that counts, you know, Um, not merely techniques of how to read history uh, documents against the grain and so forth. You have gotta have that attitude.
1: Howard Zinn was uh, very fond of uh, Orwell's, those who control the present control the past and those who control the past control the future.
0: That's precisely correct, I mean, you know, how can you disagree with that? On the other hand, those, you know, in that statement, those who control the past and those who are able to determine the future, those are a minority. And in fact, frankly speaking, increasingly, those have become extraordinarily mediocre people. And it's astounding that those are able to control the past. You know, at some point, money power is insufficient. You've got to have a vision. you got to have an ability to articulate what the past looks like and what the future must look like. Look at today's leaders, whether it's Joe Biden or Emmanuel Macron or Olaf Scholz, and these are the ones in the West, Kishida in Japan. I mean, these are, if you don't mind my saying so, pretty mediocre figures um, who don't inspire the kind of confidence. I don't share any opinion with somebody like Churchill for instance, as an example of the past, but Churchill was a considerable uh, character. You know, he understood what he was doing. He was brutal in the way he defined the past and how he wanted to anticipate the future and so on. The caliber of those, you know, those who control the past and so on, the caliber of them has really deteriorated. And despite the fact that they control money and that they control the warships and so on, they're going to have a harder and harder time controlling our imagination because they're simply not able to provide a narrative that's compelling for millions and billions of people. Today's leaders don't even have the capacity, it seems to me, to put together a theory of the world. The United States is a fragile power. It wants to contest China rather than actually come up with its own vision for what the world should look like. United States is now descended into fear mongering about China, fear mongering about Xi Jinping, fear mongering about what the Chinese will do to the world, and so on. Get us with a compelling narrative of what the United States proposes to do, rather than merely introduce fear and hatred into public discussion. Public discussion is already deteriorated considerably. To increase that, to add fuel to the fire, by, you know, fear mongering about China is not adequate. I'd like to see people like even Macron, who's perhaps the most intelligent of the lot, articulate a vision for a renewed West. I just haven't seen it.
1: You know, here in the United States, there's, you know, talking about the past and history is a deification of what I call the founding fathers, infallible men who did great things and created the United States of of America. This is across the board among political elites. No one challenges that narrative.
0: Well, it's not just the founding fathers. I read the other day, almost accidentally, I wasn't looking to find it, that something like the first dozen U.S. presidents owned human beings. They owned slaves, Uh, maybe more than the first dozen, but certainly the first dozen. It tells you something about these founding fathers. If we just stick with the originators, the people who wrote the constitution and so on. Look, you know, they did something quite incredible. They did, um, on behalf of their class, fight off the British Empire. They did write a constitution that in many respects was ahead of its time. It's a pretty good constitution. At the same time, these same gentlemen uh, froze into amber, social relations such as enslavement of human beings. Um, They actually uh, fought against King George III so that they could go beyond the original colonies and conquer the lands of the Amerindian peoples and so on. I mean, you know, a country must build its own narrative based on the facts, not on a myth. Um, I think it's healthier for a country to acknowledge the facts of, of its construction, the facts of um, its origin, you know, because then you know where you have come from and where you must go, uh, not freeze time at the originary point, you know, there is this attitude in the United States, which is, I suppose, um, really quite uh, developed in the Supreme Court now, where this idea of originary thinking, you know, origination. What did the actual founding fathers mean when they wrote that sentence? I mean, they have made the U.S. Constitution into a religious text. And if you make a constitution into a religious text, then as in most religious traditions, the writing of the constitution is mythical. It's not factual. You don't want the actual facts. You don't want to know actually what these men were like, because you have raised them to the standard of, you know, the Titans of the early Americas, the gods and so on. God forbid they had failures, if they had failures and failings and limitations, then you would have to say, look, here's a constitution written by people of that time who also had limitations. So we should be able to interpret the Constitution, perhaps rewrite bits of it and so on. But my goodness, the American right, but also sections of the liberal element, it's not only the myth of the founding fathers as a way to look at history that detains them. It's also what this means for the politics today, because then they can make the argument that, well, you know, the founding fathers said the following, David, in the Second Amendment, which is to say regarding guns. And if they said it there, despite the fact that reality shows that having guns saturate a society is very unhealthy. It's bad for the public health. Children are being killed and so on. Let's consider getting rid of the Second Amendment. You can't because, my goodness, the founding fathers put it in there. And if the founding fathers, these great mythical figures who can do no wrong, put it in there, well, you can't revise it. It's extraordinary to have such a religious attitude you know, towards a text that, in fact, when it was written acknowledged for itself that it was not to be a religious text. These men themselves, founding fathers as they are seen to be, they were not canonical religious people. You know, many of them were deists. They had all kinds of interesting ideas about their place in the world. But the people who are interpreting the text don't don't see their deism. You know, they don't see the interesting 18th century ideas with which they Uh, played. I remember as a child visiting a a cemetery in Calcutta where I grew up and in this cemetery is the grave of Sir William Jones, you know, one of the great Indologists. Well, Sir William Jones was a a deist and I quite remember my uncle explaining to me why there was a giant eye in a pyramid um, on the grave of of Sir William uh, Jones and when you look at the US dollar bill, you see a similar Kind of deist symbolic, you know, symbolism, the, the pyramid with the eye in it. There's nothing mysterious about it. These were deists. They were fascinated by Egyptology, by the discoveries in Egypt. They were fascinated by the idea of one God that was not, you know, Christian or Jewish or Islamic, but one sort of God itself. But yet the people who interpret their text don't see them as people. They see them quite right, as you said, so as sort of mythical figures, cannot do no wrong. Therefore, they cannot be challenged. Or not only challenged, but revised. They cannot be revised.
1: Talk about the intersection of imperialism and propaganda. In the book, Culture and Resistance, Edward Said said, and I'm quoting, every empire does two things. It begins by saying it's not like any of the empires of the past. And second, it always talks not in terms of destruction, but in fact, of the opposite, that it's bringing enlightenment and civilization, peace and progress to the other people. It was true in Conrad's day 100 years ago, and it's true today.
0: A great, great thinker and wonderful person, Edward Said. He's of course correct because It is true that empires don't like to imagine that they are simply repetitions of earlier empires. Although I must say that, again, if you came back to me for a walk in Calcutta, then we went into the Victoria Memorial, um, you'd find marble statues of British officials dressed in togas. So the British did sort of fantasize that they were, you know, Pax Britannica was, in a sense, the updated version of Pax Romana. There is an element uh, among empires of saying we have a relation with the past, but of course we are better than them. More than anything else, the key thing about an empire or about any kind of human domination is human beings very rarely uh, believe that they do bad things for bad ends. Yes, they acknowledge we're doing some bad things, but we're doing it for a good reason. Yes, yes, we're killing off people, but for a good reason. Yes, we're putting people in their place. We're teaching them a more civilized way of living and so on. Um, That's the reason why we had to kill two, three hundred odd people in Jallianwala Bagh in 1919 in Punjab, India. And then they said, it's for your own good. It's for civilization. Well, I mean... For God's sake, the Indians certainly didn't need civilizational advice from the British. And after all those years of colonialism, the remarkably long period, centuries of colonialism, when the British were finally ejected from India, the literacy rate was 13%. There was a steep decline in people's ability to read and write because they basically closed down all the Indian schools. Uh, People now had to study the British way. That was not working. And also, very few people were actually able to go to formal schools. And, you know, what civilization? Where?
1: Conrad nailed it in Heart of Darkness. He wrote, the conquest of the earth, which mostly means the taking it away from those who have a different complexion or slightly flatter noses than ourselves, is not a pretty thing when you look into it too much. What redeems it is the idea only.
0: I keep returning to India, David, because that formed me in so many ways. I grew up and, and studied about India for years and have lived there off and on for years and so on. So I keep returning to it. Early in my life, I used to love going on the Indian trains, riding the train sometimes to the coastline of Odisha, or riding the train to Delhi, riding the train to Hyderabad, and so on. I love the overnight train rides in India. Once my father told me, you know, son, look down at the track as we go by. You'll see the two metal rails and then the pieces of the slats of wood, which hold the rails together. And I used to say, you know, that was lovely to look at. When you're riding in the train, you look at the track next to you. The wood seems to disappear. You know, it's a kind of the illusion of speed. Um, but he then told me a story of how when the British came into the area that's now Bihar and Jharkhand, um, they discovered forests of mahogany trees. Now, mahogany is an incredible tree. It takes a very long time to grow, but the wood is superb and it, it provides beautiful shade. Well, the British cut, he said, entire forest of mahogany in order to make the slats for the rail lines. It was a brutal Uh, use of an old part of nature, you know, brutal use. And in the place where the mahogany used to grow in those forests, they began to grow opium and indigo. Opium to force the Chinese to become uh, addicted to the drug uh, and indigo, of course, for the international market to dye clothes. Uh, They grew plantations on that old mahogany forest to grow in opium and indigo and hence depleted the soil because in the indigo plantations, they never really gave the soil time to rest. So not only did they take from the soil, our trees, they also took the soil itself and then took of course, the lives of generations of Chinese who didn't want to um, you know, take the opium, but the British fought was from 1849 to 1860 to force the Chinese um, into opium consumption. By the way, many of the great names of the Asian trade, um Jardine Matheson, for instance, Barclay's Bank. the American listeners will be familiar with Forbes, the Forbes family, with Astor family, the famous Astor Place in New York. these were all drug dealers. You know, they made their money selling opium to the Chinese, forcing the Chinese to ingest opium. I mean, it's incredible when you think of Hong Kong Shanghai Bank and its history in this. You know, we never get an accounting, a reckoning. The Astors have never had to pay the price for being drug dealers. The Forbes have never paid the price for being drug dealers. They got away scot-free for that. But the soil was depleted in the part of the world where I lived in was destroyed. And as a consequence, we have open deserts now in sections of Jharkhand. Areas where there used to be thick forests are now basically savannah. The lungs of that part of the world were destroyed. Well, that was not done by reckless Indian policy, although the Indian government is pretty reckless with nature. That was an inheritance of those who came to civilize us. Perhaps Conrad is right. To civilize us meant to take away the things that gave us joy in our landscape. For instance, our forests.
1: People might be familiar with the film by Francis Ford Coppola, Apocalypse Now, which took its inspiration from uh, Heart of Darkness, which is, you know, it's a very slim volume. It's really a novella, but he captures the essence of uh, imperialism. And he has the character Kurtz, who's played by Marlon Brando in, in the film, say, exterminate the brutes,
0: that's a great line, and you know that's the name of a book uh, written, of course, by Sven Swen Lindquist about the horrendous genocidal behavior of the Belgian monarch King Leopold II in um, in the Congo. Uh, Conrad's book is set in something that's like the Congo. Um, it's kind of a not clear the geography, but it's it's something like the Congo. I must say that I want people if they haven't seen Coppola's film. Uh, Apocalypse Now to see it, because it is an extraordinary film about the arrogance of empire and also um, the really sad situation for young people uh, who are sent to do empire's work. After all, many of the characters, the U.S. characters in that film who go in the U.S. military uh, to fight in Vietnam, where the film is set, they are not exactly brutal people. You know, these are People with sensitivity, and they don't know what they're doing there. The encounter with that great captain, I'm not sure what his rank is, played by Robert Duval, you know, who says at that famous scene when the helicopters are coming in, he says, I like the smell of napalm in the morning. And right below them, as they're straffing the Vietnamese countryside, uh, his one of his favorite people, I guess from San Diego, is surfing as they go into advance. The surrealism of that is extraordinary. But Coppola, I think, is making an important point there, which is that, you know, that's a surfer kid. He doesn't want to be there. He wants to be surfing off the coastline of California. You know, what is he doing in the backwaters of Vietnam, fighting against a people who have a legitimate right to determine their own destiny? It's a really powerful film, I feel. I don't know how much it gets watched any longer. It's so long. I don't know if people have the appetite for such a long movie, but it is a profound critique of uh, of the war against the Vietnamese.
1: Well, you also have, thanks to Wikileaks, the video of u s. helicopter pilots in Baghdad mowing down unarmed Iraqi civilians
0: when I first saw that video, I was really quite shocked by um a couple of things firstly we knew about that massacre beforehand um in fact a reporter from the united states had written a book about that company called the good soldiers in which he indicated that such a video had um, existed you know that there was a helicopter video um, he of course in his book uh, justified the killing by the helicopter pilots hence the title the good soldiers but There was this hint in his book that there was a video and that he had seen it. U.S. military refused and said there is no such thing, refused to reveal this video. Um, The killing had happened. It was very clear that two uh, Reuters employees had been killed, one of them a camera person, one of them a driver, um, that other civilians had been killed. There's a scene where they are lying uh, essentially for death on the roadside, and one of the people... Um, I think it might be Saeed or one of them is reaching out for his he's moving and his camera is in front of him with a very large telephoto lens. And the helicopter pilot says, uh, I have permission to engage, you know, and then they get, he, he said, reach for that gun, reach for that gun, which is actually a camera. When he does, he fires again. And then this car comes a very, um, you know, a man, you know, humanitarian arrives with his his car um, and he parks there trying to put the wounded into his car so he can take them to hospital. The helicopters fire a missile into the car. Now, in the car were his two children, this man's two children. Both were grievously injured. The man was killed. One of the children was blinded and so on. U.S. troops eventually come there and they find these two children uh, who survived that attack miraculously. The, The soldiers were deeply moved. Years later, I went and visited that place, David. It's a very small square in New Baghdad City, which is one of the suburbs to Baghdad. Um, It's a horrendous uh, feeling to be there on the ground, walking around. Here's the thing, is that the soldier who went and first picked out the children felt enormously guilty and later made a number of public statements, tried to help these children and so on in some small way. You know, this is the soldier who doesn't want to be there you know, who's who's sent there to do Empire's bidding. But I must say, that video, when released by WikiLeaks, thanks to Chelsea Manning, finally put on the record the fact that the US government had done this. And of course, there's no investigation further. You know, there's no international criminal court. There's no nothing. The sheer attitude of the pilots, you know, saying, oh, yes, we got them, you know, this, that, as if they're playing a video game, it's extraordinary, the ethical collapse um, of those pilots. But, you know, the very fact that a civilian comes and tries to save people or that a soldier is heart sick by what he sees suggests to me that humanity continues to exist. The wife of the, um, of the man who was killed, who came to rescue people and, you know, her, and the mother of the two children continues to speak out against war in Iraq and so on. One of the things I discovered in Iraq, which I often talk about, David, is that every house in cities like Baghdad, Fallujah, Ramadi, um, every house, every household has somebody who was either killed or badly injured in that war. The war lasted from 2003, that is to say the second phase of the U.S. war in Iraq. There was an earlier phase from 1991 to 2003, including terrible sanctions regime, in the second phase from 2003 to roughly 2010, that seven-year period, the U.S. attacks in Iraq were harsh. I mean, really harsh. Leveling parts of Fallujah, leveling parts of Ramadi, bombing civilian neighborhoods in Baghdad, bombing rural areas up and down the major rivers. We just, you know, haven't had a proper accounting of the kind of violence even the fact that the U.S. government used depleted uranium, you know, as a routine basis hasn't been properly acknowledged. Um, there's no real official history that I've seen uh, of the war, you know, that that puts all these things together. But I wonder if if there will be a accounting of that war. And finally, if we'd have an accounting of the number of people killed in that war, including, of course, this man who stops his car to rescue civilians. He should have been given an award not being greeted by a missile from a U.S. Apache helicopter.
1: You're listening to Vijay Prashad on History Lessons, part one of a special two-part program. This is Independent Alternative Radio. For copies of this program with Vijay Prashad and his books, Washington Bullets and the Darker Nations, call us at one 800 Again, that's one 800 1977 Or go online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. And those helicopter pilots were chortling, you may have noticed. They were chuckling as they were lighting, lighting them up. And, you know, uh, uh, and of course, that video uh, was leaked by Chelsea Manning, who gave it to Wikileaks to Julian Assange, who has been since then persecuted and prosecuted, facing extradition to the United States and uh, criminal charges. I mean, he, he's doing what a journalist should be doing, uncovering the truth.
0: You know, I first was in touch with Julian Assange before he created Wikileaks. And he had said he had, you know, very sincerely said he was interested in creating some sort of web-based portal that would allow, you know, whistleblowers to put material. And I've got to say, you know, I, I just thought he was one of these hacker type guys. In fact, the f- truth is that Julian himself is not a hugely technically adept person. He just had the idea. He's the kind of person who, like you and I, know what to do with a computer. But we're not people who are able to hack into computers or anything. That's not his skill set. He was able to talk to people about his idea and they built a pretty secure website initially. They got leaks from various governmental sources, you know, from around the world. Initially, they were small fry, David, small little leaks here and there, which created a little bit of chaos in this country or that country, but nothing major. Um, The first major leak that they got was from Chelsea Manning. And that was extraordinary. You know, the, the bravery of Chelsea Manning Chelsea Manning sees this video, is horrified, downloads it. Chelsea Manning then decides, I'm going to download almost everything I can. The charge against Julian isn't just publishing this material, because I published the material at the same time. So did The Guardian. So did The New York Times. So did Lakhonada. So did, you know, the Hindu newspapers around the world. Why aren't all the publishers and editors sitting in Belmarsh prison with with Julian. Why am I not there? I, I was one of the first people to write about um, the Apache helicopter video, you know, in Frontline magazine. We saw it in advance. Why, why am I not sitting with Julian in Belmarsh playing chess with him and so on? Why are we not there? Well, the accusation against Assange is very, very uh, dangerous and it's completely wrong. Firstly, they accuse um, Julian of helping Chelsea Manning break into the system. The State Department System. This is not true. Chelsea Manning reached out to Julian, and the authorities know this. They're using a false allegation and using that to charge Julian Assange on the Espionage Act. How can Julian Assange have conducted espionage? Julian, firstly, which is a treason offense. He's not a U.S. citizen. He's an Australian citizen, not based in the U.S. He didn't put his finger into the U.S. governmental system. Chelsea Manning did. And Barack Obama pardoned Chelsea Manning. So if you're going to pardon Chelsea Manning, who actually got the material off the website, why don't you just let Julian Assange go? In fact, the U.S. government has no right to even pardon him because he has done nothing wrong. He has merely been the recipient of information that was brought out of a secure server by Chelsea Manning and then he published it. He did the role of a publisher and journalist. He doesn't even need to be pardoned because that's ridiculous. You, you are pardoned for something you do wrong. He has to simply be released from Belmarsh prison for doing a service to the world. I mean, imagine how absurd this is. The person who actually broke into the system has been pardoned. The journalist that published that information is sitting in prison. I mean, it, this is completely commonsensically illogical. And yet people say, well, you know, he committed a crime. Wait a minute. The crime was committed by Chelsea Manning. Chelsea Manning doesn't deny that she broke into the system. Well, she had access to the system, but she illegally downloaded the material and handed it outside the secure channel. That's a crime. She broke the law. You know, that was a brave act of violating a law, but she was pardoned for that. That was the crime. Julian has committed no crime, yet he's sitting in Belmarsh being tortured. And I feel solidarity
1: with a fellow journalist who is being hounded uh, by U.S. authorities. Uh, He seems to me to exemplify that common adage about the role of a journalist is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. But what we have in this case is the reverse.
0: My sympathy is entirely with Julian as a publisher and as a journalist. I'm not going to pass any comment about anything else. I mean, that's where it begins and ends. This is what I I feel is that different parts of the world, you know, the press is getting attacked. Like in the United States and in the UK, it's almost a concerted thing that for people who dissent from the official view, now the attack on them, you don't need to arrest people. They simply say you are purveyors of disinformation you know, you are a Putinite or you are an agent of the Chinese. I mean, I just spent a morning with Noam Chomsky in Sao Paulo. We were in Brazil together during the election campaign. had a very nice um, coffee with Noam and Noam was pretty dismayed about the attacks on him uh, for his rather sensible, rational position on the situation in Ukraine. Um, People calling him, you know, agent of Putin. I mean, for God's sake, Noam Chomsky in his mid-90s is a man of greater integrity than any troll on social media who decides to disparage somebody like that. I mean, you've got to recall how strange this is in, a, in the world where dissent gets colored as disinformation. And, you know, we know this is a strategy. This is not me just ranting and raving. Leaked a few months ago was some emails between a British intelligence officer And Paul Mason, the former BBC journalist who's now running for a Labour seat in Sheffield in the UK. Well, Paul Mason and this British intelligence person chatting back and forth basically say we need to describe dissenters as purveyors of disinformation. That's the kind of phraseology they play with. And because they play with that phraseology, we know This is exactly what happens. It's much easier to say that I am an agent of China than argue with me on the merits, on the evidence, and so on. And that's a form of disparaging, as it were, people who are trying to lift up stories that are not being taken seriously. You know, I am neither a a stenographer for the U.S. State Department nor am I a stenographer for the Communist Party of China. I'm just interested in stories. And yet, if you come out with a story they don't like, well. They want to either disparage you or at worst uh, do to you what they did to Julian Assange.
1: In your book, The Withdrawal with Noam Chomsky, he compares the United States to the godfather, the mafia boss. What was Noam getting at there?
0: You know, I asked Noam several times, did he mean the actual godfathers in the world, the mafia bosses, or did he mean Marlon Brando? I mean, We seem to be going in circles with Francis Ford Coppola and Marlon Brando. Uh, Talked already about um, Apocalypse Now, directed by Coppola with Marlon Brando. And now we come to The Godfather, one of my favorite films, directed by Coppola, starring Marlon Brando. Well, I think that both Noam and I have uh, our understanding of the mafia boss shaped from that film and perhaps The Sopranos. Um... What is Noam getting at? It's a basic axiom of the present time that if you don't agree with the United States government, then you're wrong. Uh, Then it's okay to whack you even. It's perfectly acceptable. You'll remember the great liberal president in our time, Barack Obama, would sit in his office, in the Oval Office, on I believe it was Thursday in the morning and go over a list of names of people that the United States was considering assassinating. And he would tick off some of the names. Yes, let's kill them, including a 16-year-old U.S. citizen who was killed in Yemen. Um, And then U.S. drones would get up into the sky and bomb these people and kill them. No trial, no evidence, no nothing, no habeas corpus, none of that. Straightforward assassination campaign. Based on things like that, based on The way in which the U.S. government operates in international negotiations and treaties, you know, don't like the Iran deal? We're just going to walk out of it. Don't like the intermediate nuclear force treaty? Just going to walk out of it. Now, somebody will say, well, it was Trump that walked out of both of those treaties. It's not just Trump that walks out of treaties. You know, we have about 30 treaties which are sitting at the Senate floor, you know, which have not been ratified. And the Senate has not always been controlled by the Trumpists. You know, the Senate is currently in the hands of the Democrats. Why didn't they bring up the uh, International Convention on the Laws of the Sea, for instance, sitting on the Senate floor, bring it up for a vote, pass it? Then the US could legitimately and legally conduct freedom of navigation exercises against the Chinese. Right now, the United States is conducting those so called freedom of navigation exercises illegally, because the U.S. government is not a signatory of the Convention on the Laws of the Sea. So this attitude, you know, we don't like that treaty, we're not going to do it. We don't like the International Criminal Court, we're not going to ha- get involved in it. If you, Fateh Ben Souda, the lead prosecutor at the International Criminal Court, decide to open a file on U.S. war crimes on Afghanistan, we're not going to give you a visa to come and testify before the UN Security Council, as is your mandate, that's the attitude of the godfather. That's not the attitude of a of a statesman and so on. This attitude that we can kill anybody we want, we can use our force to intimidate and, and bully you, that's not statesmanship. That's godfatherism. And you know, they'd all have that, what is it, the omerta, the kind of rules of the of the game that discuss, look, can we handle this without starting a gang war? Well, in some cases, the U.S. government doesn't even do a sit-down. Let's just do the gang war. Look how the U.S. government is bullying Cuba and Venezuela. As we speak, once again, for the 30th time almost in a row, the U.N. General Assembly has voted to condemn the U.S. blockade of Cuba. You know, the world stands with Cuba, and yet the United States, gangster, you know, mafia attitude. We're going to throttle you. We're going to hold you like this. For God's sake, I mean. Well, let's dial back a little bit
1: uh, in terms of uh, history to 1983 and Grenada. Uh, In your book, Washington Bullets, the CIA Coups and Assassinations, you write, my first indelible memory of political activity comes from the US intervention in Grenada in 1983. Talk about that invasion of this small Caribbean island, which I dare say most people can't find on the
0: map. So I didn't know where Granada was. I had no idea who Maurice Bishop was. The only thing I knew about the Caribbean was its other name was the West Indies. And it played the best cricket uh, on the planet at that time. That's the only thing I knew about the Caribbean. Uh, I didn't know anything about uh, much about slavery. You know. I mean, I hadn't read enough yet at the time. I was a young boy. But I did read in the newspaper that the United States had sent the Marines to this island and had uh, captured the airport and basically overthrown the New Jewel Movement. I-, I remember that quite vividly, thinking, this is strange. This is interesting. United States is a very large country. I looked at the atlas in our school library and I found Grenada and found it's so small it could bear, it was barely possible to see it on the Atlas. You know, we had a not a very good Atlas, but there was this large United States of America. I had grown up in mortal fear of it because when I was a very little boy in 1971, um, we were worried that the seventh fleet was coming up the Bay of Bengal and was going to bomb Calcutta to prevent the Indian army entering East Pakistan to assist the Bangladeshis in the creation of Bangladesh. You know, we had to put chart paper up in our windows. You know, I thought, oh, my God, the Americans are going to kill us. That was the kind of history with which I looked at the news story on Grenada. And I was horrified by it. Trying to find anything in our school library on it was impossible. But I did read a few newspaper articles. And I learned a little bit at the time about the new new jewel movement and Maurice Bishop. And I remember writing a longish piece, again, for the school newspaper, on the U.S. intervention into Grenada, um, trying to attach it in my own juvenile way to other U.S. interventions of that kind, including, and most spectacularly, the one on which I found some material, which was the U.S. armed entry into the Dominican Republic uh, in 1965. I was somehow able to find something on that, Juan Bosch and all of that. I don't know how our school library had something on the Dominican Republic, but... In this article, I compared the intervention into the Dominican Republic with Grenada, And it impacted me a lot because I felt, why do poor people have to tolerate this over and over again? Um, over the years later, you know, looking with more detail at U.S. interventions, you see the different ways in which interventions happen. But my God, it's a cliche. In many respects, it's the same old thing. Send in the Marines, overthrow the guy you don't like, disparage him. Call him all kinds of names and eventually put your own person in charge and don't allow the people to advance their agenda. I've been so interested um, in this way in which the U.S. government has uh, routinely gone and intervened in places and ruined the lives of people just because, you know, they're trying to improve the situation for their own public. And that's out of the question, out of the question why? Out of the question, because if they improve their living conditions, then those big companies that make massive profits on upon them will not be able to do so any longer. And that's, you know, inexcusable. I'm a chaser of absolutely forgotten and useless stories. I'm always chasing these stories of like weird and mysterious things that have happened in the world, because I feel like if you pull on the string of these stories, other pieces of the pie begin to show themselves. The fabric unravels a little bit. And I think that the story of Granada, 1983, that's the first string that I remember pulling and and beginning to understand little by little why even small countries cannot be permitted uh, to stand up straight. Next year will be the 50th anniversary of the U.S. imposed coup on Chile. I spend most of my time now in Santiago, in Chile, And I'm telling you, you know, I don't even know if the Chilean people are prepared 50 years later to properly understand this coup against them. The impact of that coup has been horrendous. You write in Washington
1: Bullets, the first draft of history the truism goes is the media. Like all truisms, it's only partly correct. In the case of imperialism, it's downright misleading. And then you go on to say to read the media about Grenada after the 1979 revolution was to take stenography from the US government.
0: I mean isn't that the case look when you look at the newspaper reporting take the New York Times, the so called paper of record, you know, whatever that means not much anymore. uh, Perhaps never take the New York Times in Washington bullets I write about reporters. From the Washington, from the New York Times, essentially being suborned by the CIA to go and cover the events in Guatemala. You know, they're basically um, on secondment to the CIA to go to Guatemala and write stories about what was happening there. They, they were not even able to write the things that they were seeing with their own eyes. They had to listen to what the ambassador said, they had to basically um, follow the diktat coming from from Langley, from the CIA headquarters. In Grenada, it was extraordinary because you read the New York Times and they all say things like one way, uh, one interpretation of this or the other. They all say things like, well, the Cubans had intervened um, into, uh, into Grenada and to prevent a Cuban takeover of, of Grenada, you know, the United States had to intervene. Now let's pause for a minute. Firstly, the new jewel movement was already as radical as the Cuban revolution. And they were were Grenadians. They were not Cubans. They didn't need the Cubans to teach them about revolution. They were already as radical, if not more. Secondly, the new jewel movement was already facing an internal challenge. You know, Maurice Bishop was killed in the middle of that internal challenge. Um, They were going through their own problems. But the Cubans that the U.S. press talked about, What a couple of technicians, you know, sitting at the airport doing some technical, um, you know, work as Cubans often do, you know, Cubans do various forms of technical support for anybody who asks them. And the most high form of technical support the Cubans do is sending their doctors, including in the midst of the COVID pandemic, into hot wards in other countries to help save lives. The Cubans are extraordinary like that. You know, they were not their big armed force. Uh, to go take over Grenada, that, you know, where the poor Grenadians needed to be protected from the Cubans by the United States. Nothing like that. But the New York Times routinely offered the Washington storyline, you know, Langley's storyline that the U.S. government intervened essentially to prevent Cuba from occupying Grenada. That was a lie. It also disparages the Grenadians who are building their own revolutionary process. It, it seems as if, you know, they were basically puppets of a uh, distant Cuban puppeteer. Entirely not correct and not correct even in the stories because the reporters were not seeing people on the ground. And, and what's extraordinary is not long afterward. In fact, the memoir of the CIA agent who was in charge of Grenada was more accurate than the New York Times reporting. It, it turned out that he was not in station in Grenada at the time. He had a stomach ailment and was off island. But when he returned and he got the story, um, he sent in his reports back to Langley the fact that there was no Cuban presence there as such, You know, some technicians and so on. So in that sense, yes, the media is grotesquely limited. Look at what the New York Times, and by the way, the Washington Post did in the lead up to that massive US bombardment of Iraq, so-called shock and awe in 2003. It's one thing to just blame Judy Miller. Judy Miller is the one who wrote the stories on the weapons of mass destruction and so on. Judy Miller was the reporter. Where were the editors? I mean, I'm told it's a paper of record, which means that they must have copy editors, desk editors, a division editor, you know, the international desk editors and so on. Where were the editors when she filed a story about how well, you know, a a source had told her about how Saddam was doing this, that, and the other... Um, did they have a second source? Could they talk to the source? Could they verify the source? I mean, for God's sake, I work for a wire service, which seems much more rigorous and my editor won't let me get away with with the anonymous sourcing, much more rigorous than what the New York Times did with Judy Miller. Well, the reason they perhaps were not, and I'm speculating here, the reason they perhaps were not so rigorous with Judy Miller is that they had somebody putting a finger uh, on the edit page saying, let it go through. We want this to go through. I don't know. Maybe they had some friend in Washington calling them up and saying, she's writing some really important stories. Thank you for giving her space. I don't know. I don't know what exactly happened. But the fact is, they sacked Judy Miller, but the editors all remained. That means that somebody, um, you know, understood what they were up, up to. Either they it was negligence. Uh, editorial negligence for which somebody should be fired or they were perfectly happy with what they were doing but they had to let somebody go so they fired judy miller it's not just the iraq war it this continues all the way through i'll tell you the reporting of the u.s press at the time of the war in syria was extraordinarily limited same in libya i'll, I'll give you a quick example david about libya A shocking example so i was then going back and forth, covering the war in in Libya and at the United Nations. And at the United Nations, between uh, the passing of UN Resolution 1970, which prevented arms sales to all sides, and 1973, which said that, you know, the United Nations allows member states to intervene to prevent this conflict. Between those two resolutions, um, the UN Secretariat started to talk about how evidence was emerging from Libya of genocidal situation in places like Ajtabia and so on, at the front lines between the Gaddafi troops and the rebellion. Um, so the UN started to say gen- evidence is coming of genocidal behavior. I asked the secretariat people there, what is the evidence from? Does the UN have people on the ground? You know, how do you know about uh, the events taking place in Libya? And they said, no, no, we don't have people on the ground. And then I said, well, where are you getting this from? And they said, oh, newspaper reports. Well, didn't want to push them in public because I knew they wouldn't answer anything. Later, I talked to a friend of mine who works in the UN, at the time worked in the UN Secretariat. And I said, what press are you guys looking at? And this person said to me, well, the main press that's reporting all this is Al Arabiya. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me. Al Arabiya? Al is the newspaper of the Saudi royal family. You know, it has as much credibility as ExxonMobil's newsletter. I mean, for God's sake, it's not not the press. It's a press release, you know, from the Saudi royal family. But yet that was the press that the UN used to ascertain the fact that there is genocidal conditions. And then they put forward that resolution and went and told all the other ambassadors, we have evidence of genocide. After the war in Libya, which destroyed the Libyan state, amnesty international went back and looked at some of the allegations of genocide and wrote a report saying there was no genocidal condition in libya but did anybody report on the amnesty report nobody it's extraordinary you know it's extraordinary how the mainstream media in the particularly western countries have been in a sense militarized or weaponized into war war making i don't want to comment on their reporting on ukraine but i'll let your listeners basically draw their own conclusions. You
1: were just listening to Vijay Prashad on History Lessons, part one of a special two-part program. Vijay Prashad is an internationally renowned historian and journalist. He's the author of many books, including The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World, and Washington Bullets, CIA Coups and Assassinations. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent progressive nonprofit in our 37th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Noam Chomsky, Arundhati Roy, and Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. And we have a series of programs with Vijay Prashad. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To order copies of today's program, Vijay Prashad on History Lessons, and for his books, Washington Bullets, The CIA Coups and Assassinations, and the Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World, just give us a call, one 800 444 That's one 800 444 Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. series theme music is performed by the Kronos Quartet from Pieces of Africa. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening.